You are listening to the Labenthal Report. If you're listening to the show live, join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. And good evening. I'm Michael Hartzman. Today is Tuesday, January 24th. 2023, and I'm on, as always, with my partner, Dominic Tavella. How are you, Dom? Doing great, Mike. How about yourself? I'm doing well. No complaints. A little chilly today on Long Island, but uh, no complaints. It's uh, January gla- 24th. It's supposed to be. Glass half full. It could be a lot worse. It's, exactly. It's January in New York. I, I saw a, a, a story in Newsday over the weekend that we're getting close to setting a record for no snow consecutive days in a row. I'm not complaining. Well, and a conversation I had with a client just recently that the warm weather overall here in the United States, but also in Europe has really helped in terms of energy prices. And so there is a, a bonus besides that we're a little bit more comfortable that it's helped with the inflationary front. That's some segue. That was nicely done. Wow. <laughs> it is that true. Was... I mean, we're going to get into that discussion in a little bit, but if you wonder why energy prices have not gone as high and slash even rolled over a little bit, that's actually been a very big component to, to why. It, no, it's true, obviously, because, you know, there's a war in Ukraine and Russian oil and a lot of Europe, you know, depends on Russia for energy. And, you know, I get it. The, the, the cold winters, in Europe, in Eastern Europe, could have been devastating with what's going on over there. There's no yeah, question the, the about war it. The war obviously has impacted Europe. And then you think about uh, these poor people in Ukraine and a really, really cold winter would have been nightmarish for the people on literally on the ground. And then the budgets and people's uh, ability to spend money and economic growth and world inflation. It, 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 listen, we, we're gleefully happy that it's not really cold and, you know, a foot of snow on the ground, but it has some pretty significant uh, world economic uh, effects and impact. And I guess you can make the, you know, the argument, it's, a, it's part of the contribution why so far the first three weeks of the year have been, you know, pretty good. We're all pleasantly surprised. The S&P 500 through Friday, and it's up a little bit higher than that now, was up three and a half percent. Um, the Dow Jones was kind of flat, um, up about 1%. And the NASDAQ, you know, the NASDAQ giveth and it taketh away. It always seems to be the biggest winner and the biggest loser. Uh, right now, thankfully, it's the biggest winner, um, up about 7% year to date. Um, and, and that's what a lot of investors focus on because those are the, as I say every week, those are the sexy stock names that they people are, really dwell uh, on. Mike, and, and uh, not so much for us, but in many client uh, portfolios, they've built up positions in all these names that you, you know, you can't lose money. Uh, unfortunately, last year was the worst performing category. So far this year, it's been the best performing category, this large cap growth space. Technology in particular has performed exceedingly well. We'll see how that plays out. We have a a Fed decision coming the end of this month, beginning of next, and that might have some impact. But so far, as you pointed out, um, one of the best performing sectors has been this large cap growth tech space. And you mentioned the Fed meeting, Dom, and the best way I could describe it is after the last two Fed meetings, the stock market basically threw a temper tantrum. 
right? And, and because they want the Fed to say something, notably that that when one, they're done raising interest rates for now, and two, they're going to start lowering them this year. We've talked about it in other podcasts. You know, be careful what you wish for. And and although the market's rallying now, as we talked about this morning. What the Fed said, not what the Fed does next week, but what the Fed says next week will determine whether the, you know, the the market throws another temper tantrum if they don't get what they want to hear from Chairman Powell. Yeah, Mike, I, I, I like your choice of words because I, I think it's accurate. It's almost like this little uh, five-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. And so if we just focus on last December, uh, and we can look at the couple of Fed meetings before that because of a similar pattern, but from the end of the uh, third quarter, which at this point is the last 52-week low in the market, we had a pretty significant rally up to just about the Fed meeting. And then when the markets didn't hear what they wanted to, they stomped their feet and threw a little pepper tantrum. And the rest of the month in December was a negative part to the market, right? I think for overall for the month of December, the markets were down about 7%. So we're now in rally mode, especially the more speculative part of the markets into this next Fed meeting. And we're gonna see what happens after they uh, not only give us the interest rate decision, but make their announcement about what their thoughts are going forward. So let's talk about the interest rate decision. You know, in the, in, in the beginning, in the time between the last meeting and this meeting, in the beginning of that time, um, late December, kind of the expectation was 50 basis points, maybe 25 basis point rise if we're lucky. And you and I were talking this morning, and now the expectation is, you know, maybe it will be 25. And again, that makes me a little nervous too. Because if that's what the market's expecting and they don't get it, will that create a sell-off, another little hissy fit? So to your point, Mike, we we have seen inflation come down. Mm -hmm. It seems like it peaked last June and has incrementally been coming down. And that's why the expectations from half a percent, maybe down to a quarter of a percent uh, at this next meeting, the last couple of meetings, we've gotten the hike almost spot on to what the market was expecting. Exactly spot on, right. But <laughs> it's what Chairman Powell said afterwards that created the temper tantrum, the market uh, volatility. And, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that we do get the quarter of a percent this meeting, which I think is what pretty much everybody expects. Um, I don't think the market will react dramatically uh, one way or the other, but it's the news conference afterwards that gets the markets riled up. And by the way, that message has been, hey, we're not going to lower interest rates anytime soon. We're going to keep them higher for longer. And the risk of a recession frightens the markets. Right. So, so. I think the more important part of it is not higher for longer as much as as stop raising the rates and 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 keep it at a level because history is on the Fed's side. I mean, it's unusual for the Feds to raise interest rates and lower interest rates in the same year, unless it's some economic catastrophe or God forbid a 9-11. I mean, normally the Feds raise interest rates and stop for an extended period of time, and then they go back to lowering. 
when when the economic and again you're spot on like when the economic climate calls for it right so this idea that the fed is going to raise interest rates stop and then lower them again the balance of this year again spot on mike be careful what you wish for because the only way they're going to do that is if we're in a crisis mode the economy has gone into a deep recession or something else around the world is going on that we wouldn't be happy about so I think raising interest rates and leaving them there for a little while is the path that we're going to see. Um, We don't, I know we'd like lower interest rates at some point, but I don't know if we want them at least the end of this, by the end of this year. And I think the final point I'll make on this discussion, Dom, is the last two interest rate cycles have been as a result of economic or world disasters or, or emergencies or crises whether it was the the financial the the financial crisis of 08, the pandemic, um, this is an economic cycle. It's a normal economic cycle, and I think people are losing patience as a result of that. There's nothing else to hang their hat on, right? It's just, but this is what economies do. Um, but from our perspective, why we spend so much time talking about it? Why do we spend so much time looking at it? Because at the end of the day how we structure our portfolios, how we structure and where we allocate to depends on this economic cycle, where we are in it. So clearly, if we thought we were going to go into a deep recession, we would put our eggs in one basket. If we thought the economy was going to grow through the roof, we'd have our eggs in a different basket. So we need to pay attention to this and clients need to understand that it's a moving target. So speaking of eggs and and, and baskets, we have Roberta Eckhart tonight. Eckert on tonight. She's a vice president of Nationwide Life Insurance. So you and I have a great relationship with. She's in their retirement institute. And the government, President Biden, recently um, updated, if you will, the SECURE Act that the Trump administration passed in the beginning of 2020. So they made some tweaks to it. They made some improvements to it. There's a lot to unpack in SECURE Act 2.0. And Roberta Eckert from Nationwide is joining us tonight, Tom, to help us uh, make some logical sense of some of the new rules that are going into effect. Ever-changing rules, and this is a new set and guidelines. So hopefully Roberta can give us some insight and help us do some good planning for our clients. So we will be right back with Roberta Eckert. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you paying federal taxes on your cash? I work hard for my money that I keep in cash. And for the life of me, I can't imagine why anyone would want to pay federal taxes on their cash. That's why I keep my cash in the Lebenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, symbol L-E-G-A-X, Le Tax. Rates on cash are already so low, why pay federal taxes on the interest your cash earns? Remember, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. The Lebenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, L-E-T-A-X, may help you earn more on the cash you've worked hard for and keep more after-tax dollars in your pocket. Find out more about the fund by speaking with a Labenthal Global Advisors Private Wealth Advisor or its sponsor at dcmadvisors.com. For your hard-earned cash, why pay the tax when there's the tax? Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's not what you make, 
It's what you keep. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to The Labenthal Report. If you're listening to the show live, join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to The Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartsman, back with uh, my partner, Dominic Tavella, and our guest this evening, Roberta Eckert, Vice President of Nationwide Retirement Institute. Good evening, Roberta. Good evening, gentlemen. So, Good evening, Roberta. So before we get into the meat of, of tonight's show and the SECURE Act, tell us a little bit about what you do at Nationwide, and I think we have to do a little housekeeping as well. Yeah, so my role is a field representative of the Nationwide Retirement Institute. And what we do in our role is work very closely with financial advisors to help break down and simplify a lot of complex retirement topics. If you remember, it wasn't terribly long ago, I was on the Labenthal Report talking about all things exciting about Social Security. And we had a very interesting conversation around that. We do presentations around things like Medicare, healthcare costs, tax efficient retirement distributions and income, and one of my favorites, women and retirement. Uh, one thing though that we don't do, uh, during any of the presentations that we deliver, we are not giving tax advice, we're not giving legal advice, and although I have all of my securities licenses to be a financial advisor, I'm not your financial advisor, and that's why you wanna work with Mike and Dom to really take some of these comp or these uh, uh, discussions and these concepts and so forth and put them to practical use in your own portfolio. But thank you for that. Appreciate that. And we should definitely have you on to talk about some of those other topics in the future. But but tonight we want to we want to jump into the, the most recent tax changes in the in the original Secure Act, now known as Secure Act 2.0. And, and let's start with the, the one thing that basically will ultimately affect everyone, and that's the requirement distribution rules. They were complicated before. Trying to figure out the dates involved, you needed a slide rule and a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> and I don't know if the government made it more simple or less simple, but I know they played around with a lot of dates, didn't they? They did. And I've come to realize in my 30 plus years in this business, you never use the word simple in government in the same sentence. <laughs> um, so with that, um, 
10 bucks to anybody that can tell me what secure is an acronym for. And that's just a little joke. I'm not suggesting that. But that is an acronym for setting every community up for retirement enhancement. And, you know, there's got to be an acronym for everything. But admittedly, it is something where it's catchy and memorable. Now, the first SECURE Act happened or was passed in 2019. Uh, the second version was passed uh, in December of 2022, so just last December. And some of the rules, but not all of them, are going to be effective 1-1-2023. So in other words, about three weeks, uh, three weeks ago. But it was really interesting because when they did some analysis, um, there are some numbers being tossed around. And one of them is that by 2050, the U.S. is going to face a 137 trillion, that's trillion with a T, uh, retirement income gap. And that's identified as the difference between what people should have saved, but didn't. So they said, you know what, maybe we can help out by addressing things around retirement contributions, retirement withdrawals, maybe giving a little bit of a break to some folks, especially if they've got student loans, uh, but still have the um, interest in saving for retirement. So when you mention RMDs, of course, that stands for retired, uh, retired, required minimum distributions. So effective January 1 of 2023, that threshold when individuals must, must begin taking RMDs goes from 72 to 73. And that's taking RMDs from traditional IRAs, workforce retirement plans, things like that. Now, remember that it's required minimum distribution. You can always take more, but when you're looking at qualified plans, 401k, IRAs, and so forth, and you've had the luxury of being able to defer, to defer taxation year over year over year over year, at some point the government says, enough, we need want our taxes from these distributions. You can't just defer ad infinitum. So they had the change, of course, uh, before the original SECURE Act of 2019, uh, we all know that age is 70 and a half, right? So in 2019, it went to 72. This year, it's going to 73. Now, as a result, you can choose to delay taking your RMDs until that time. Now, fast forward 10 years, and now it's January 1 of 2019. 33, and the threshold age for RMDs is going to go to 75 years old. So now it's 73. 10 years hence, it's going to go to 75. And the people listening might say, wait a minute, what happened to age 74? Well, there is no age 74. So there's no stair step going from 73 to 74 to 75. It just jumps from um, 73. Uh, I'm sorry. To, from 73 to 75. So, you know, that... Um, Roberta, RMD, I'm going to interrupt yeah. you for one you quick do. second. Because yeah. um, I just want to emphasize to the listeners, the viewers, don't write all these numbers down. Right. Uh, we're not going to test you on them later. You right. can call myself or Mike or your CPA and we'll walk you through them. But if you had already turned 70 and a half, you still work under those old rules. If you had turned 72 last year, you work under those old rules. Exactly. Right? And if you're turning 72 this year, you get to skip this year if you want to. Exactly right. You basically get a one-year reprieve. 
So, so just don't worry about remembering all the dates is that what I want to be the key takeaway. Yeah, exactly. Now, also, beginning in 2033, the penalty for not taking the RMD when you should have is going to go from 50% of the undistributed amount to 25%. So they cut you a little bit of a break for kind of failing to take out the RMD um, when you should have. So just bear in mind that the longer you wait to take your RMD, because it's based on a calculation that uh, has to do with your life expectancy, your RMD is gonna get bigger and bigger and bigger um, the longer you delay. Now, I should say that your RMD potentially should get bigger and bigger and bigger uh, because, of course, if you experience a downturn in your retirement accounts, uh, then although you might have to take uh, a larger percentage out in an absolute number, it might not be quite as much. But let's not worry about that right now. Just understand that the longer you delay, the larger uh, the amount that they are going to um, to make you take. Roberta, that's a good that's a good point. So back in the day when the retirement age was 70 and a half, or I'm mm-hmm. sorry, the RMD age was yeah. 70 and a half, the factor was approximately 3.6%. Mm-hmm. So they have not changed the actuarial table that they use, correct? So correct. so we just now move up the factor. It's no longer 3.6, it's probably closer to 3.8% as your first withdrawal, correct? Yeah, that's probably a, a good number to to think about. Yep, yep, yep. Um, something else about RMDs, as long as we're talking about this, and this is just a consideration also, because again, we always suggest you talk to your financial professional, your tax advisor, and so forth. But if I delay taking my RMD, let's say I delay um, till age 75, and my life expectancy might not be all that long. I've taken some of my money out. Um, I have drawn down my IRA, but I haven't exhausted it altogether. And now I pass away. Well, there is something that is informally known as uh, the widow's tax dilemma. They call it widows uh, informally because statistically speaking, we women outlive men. And consequently, um, in a conventional heterosexual marriage, we are the widow or survivor. Now, if I inherit my spouse's IRA as a spousal IRA, and I've got my own IRA, and I'm taking RMDs from my own IRA, and I'm taking the RMD from the inherited spousal IRA, I've doubled up on my RMDs. At the same time, I'm now filing as a single filer. And so the way the numbers work are not very advantageous to someone in that particular situation. So single filer, uh, taking the same amount of RMDs, my social security's uh, uh, amount coming into the household has gone down. Uh, So that's just something uh, to kind of be aware of. Uh, Let's assume that I'm now the widow and I'm going to leave that IRA to my child. Um, Imagine I have two children, one very well off, you know, the heart surgeon at Sloan Kettering or wherever, uh, and the other one is the proverbial starving artist. Well, if I leave that IRA to my child who's in a high tax break, remember, they've got to take that money out under the SECURE Act 1.0 over a 10-year time frame. And I could be passing away at their peak earnings years, read peak tax years. And so, you know, that's something else is who are you leaving your IRAs to? 
maybe I want to leave that IRA to the starving artist so that their tax bill might not be quite as egregious. And maybe my uh, heart surgeon child is going to uh, inherit my brokerage account, which would enjoy, at least as we know it now, a step up in basis. And the so. required minimum distribution, this is Congress's and then uh, law that they making you take the money out so that you pay taxes on it, right? At yeah. the end of the day, the purpose of all this legislation and retweaking is to force us to take the money out of the retirement account so that income taxes get paid on, the, on those distributions, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, you've been deferring, you've been deferring and deferring and deferring, uh, building up potentially wealth in those accounts. So uh, yeah, the government says, you know, you've been you've been deferring long enough. Um, we want we want our cut. So, Roberta, you work for an insurance company. I do. You do, and a great insurance company, I must say. Thank you. Um, you're in the business of selling life insurance. Frequently, we'll get a call from a client, and they'll say, "Well, I don't want my RMD. I don't need it." Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not going to take it this year. I'm like, well, <laughs> unfortunately, you don't get a vote. You right, have yeah. to take it. Um, well, but, we don't give we don't give them a vote, Mike. We don't want them paying the penalty, but they actually could choose not to do it and pay the penalty. I don't yeah, know. It's not a great it's not, it's not a great plan. Not a great um, plan. But one of the things they could do with that required minimum distribution, if they didn't actually need the money and they're healthy, is actually try to leverage that money and leave a larger estate to their loved ones that might actually be tax free. If they want, if they can, if they qualify to buy a life insurance policy with that money. That is true. That is true. And remember, uh, or maybe not remember, but I'll state that at Nationwide, we are not only a life insurance and property casualty company, but a very large part of our business is called Nationwide Financial. And we distribute life insurance exactly, but also annuities and retirement plans as well. Mm -hmm. But sure, you could take, take the RMD. Um, purchase life insurance or even life insurance with a long-term care rider, as long as, you know, we're talking about protecting the next generation or providing for them. And I've spoken to people who have said, um, you know, I, I left my children without having uh, to pay um, any student loans. I've purchased myself a long-term care policy so that I have eliminated the uh, concern and stress about them providing care for me in my later years. You know, pretty good legacy. So, yeah, you could certainly take that money out and do other things. It would still be taxable when you take it out, of course. But the proceeds could be used for a lot of good, and especially with regard to family, whether Mike talked about estate planning, it could be planning for grandkids, 529 plans, college savings accounts, Roth IRAs for children. I mean, there's a lot of planning, tax planning that can be done with the proceeds going forward. Yeah, and something else, and that is if you direct the money from your RMD to a qualified charity, make a qualified charitable distribution, um, that money goes straight to the charity. And that means that instead of taking the RMD, uh, paying taxes on it, donating it to the charity and getting the tax break, that money that you shoot right to the charity through the qualified charitable distribution doesn't even hit your 1040. And so that means that maybe the thresholds for the IRMA surcharge upon which you pay 
more premium for Medicare Part B or Part D or, or the amount in which your Social Security is taxed. You know, if that if that um, required minimum distribution that's directed to the charity doesn't even touch the, the 1040, you know, that might not be such a bad thing. That's a great Spe- planning Speaking idea. of doing good. Roberta, we just spent a lot of time about taking money out. Can we spend a little time about putting money in? Didn't they change some of the um, catch-up co- provisions and some of the limits on what you could put into your 401k and retirement plans? Yes, they did. And one of them is bumping that um, maximum additional amount that can be contributed to the workplace plan. So if you're 50 or older, um, you can contribute or uh, yeah, you can take advantage of a catch-up contribution of $6,500. That's going up to $7,500 effective this year. So you get another $1,000 bump in catch-up contributions. If you're between 60 and 63, then um, you will be able to add another $10,000 more per year over the limit, standard limit, but that doesn't start till 2025. So to kind of recap, now the catch-up contribution is going uh, from 6,500 to 7,500. That's effective right away. And then in 2025, so sorry, if I said 2023, I, I misspoke. In 2025, you, if you are between 60 and 63 and it's uh, 2025, then you can contribute another $10,000 over what the standard limit is at that time. Uh, but there's another provision about catch-up contributions, and that is that uh, they must be on an after-tax basis. So in other words, catch-up contributions are done after tax, unless you are an individual who earns $145,000 or less every year. So starting next year in 2024, and I know we got this timeline mentally going on here, catch-up contributions to IRAs, um, which are now limited to $1,000 a year, are going to be adjusted for inflation um, in increments of $100. So uh, again, the catch-up contributions on an after-tax basis, unless you're earning less than $145,000 a year. And again, to kind of clarify to people that don't worry about remembering all these dates and remembering all these amounts, having said that, the idea that if you're making over this $140,000, they're going to make you make the extra catch-up provision after tax. So you're paying taxes on that amount, right? And the tax that they're collecting in total are more than they're giving back by these other benefits. So the idea is that they're trying to get this new legislation to pay for itself. Yes. Well said. Thank you. And, and just to be clear, and you may not know the answer because this is very granular and this law is pretty new and it's not even, I mean, it's it's still a kind of a little bit of a work in progress. So if I understood you correctly, if a person is 65, 66, 67, and so forth, in 2025, they cannot put in $10,000. It's only that three-year window. Yes, they can put in the standardized limit, but the $10,000, the requirement there says it's 2025 or later. And if you are between 60 and 63 years old, you can do the $10,000 deal. 
but starting next year, if your if your adjusted gross income is over a certain amount, that extra deposit needs to be done in a Roth or after tax account. Yes, that's right. Again, it gets wonky, and and I apologize to everybody listening because we don't expect you to be taking notes on this stuff. But it does emphasize talk to your financial advisor, talk to your CPA, and don't wait until April 15th of the following year to do that. Talk to your advisor throughout the year, because this is definitely a planning process. And some of this, uh, Roberta, help us with this. Some of this stuff legally isn't even written yet, right? The IRS hasn't even finalized the rules on some of this stuff. Yeah, that's true. Congress passed it, but now it's up to the IRS to actually write the provisions. And the last point, this is this is 401k stuff we're talking about, not IRAs. So your plan administrator, your HR department, they're not mind readers. So if you want to take advantage of this, if you do get professional advice to take advantage of this, you also have to let your employer know, or your plan administrator know, because they have to adjust your salary reduction at the same time. Yeah. Well, yeah, well put. So... So, Dom, you have any other questions about um, this topic? Well, uh, we could spend the whole evening just on that, but the SECURE Act involves so many other things. Uh, maybe we should switch gears and um, maybe we could talk about 529 plans. I thought that that's, was an interesting development. That's exactly where I was going to go. All right, go, Mike. No, do it. You Go ahead. It's your question. Well, um, and it, I think it starts next year. Right, but there's some pretty interesting uses of 529 college savings account money that you may have put away for your children. So why don't we talk about that? Let's talk about some of the positives in the in the new legislation. Yeah, absolutely. And and I will also let you know, as long as we're talking about education, that retirement plan contributions for those with student loan debts. Uh, let's chat about that for a quick moment. And that is if I am an employee and I have a student loan. Um, Under the new rule, my employer can, not required to, but can make a contribution on behalf of me faced with that dilemma, Um, even if I don't make retirement plan contributions myself. So what we're seeing is there are a lot of younger people that have to make the choice between funding their retirement and paying their student debts. Um, Well, if I'm uh, enrolled in a retirement plan, and I can take advantage, or at least my employer is providing uh, contributions on my behalf, they can make contributions in my 401k plan. I'm paying off my student debt. They're helping to fund my retirement, even if I myself am not making any contributions on my own. So that's kind of a nice a nice thing, I think, as long as, as we were talking about education. So um, under the prior law, which is still effective this year, and we're going to talk about the 529 balance and the Roth um, IRA. So they can't be taken as a non-qualified distribution, but the and this is still under the 2023 rule, the earnings portion of the distribution is subject to income tax and a 10% penalty. However, next year in 2023, Uh, based on some of the provisions in the new law, you are allowed to roll up to $35,000 of leftover 529 money into a Roth IRA. So clearly, or maybe not so clearly, there are some rules involved with this. So give me just a moment. 
trying to get my light a little better. My laptop is just not behaving with my uh, lighting here. So my apologies about that. So Good. you have a 529 plan set up for a child. And maybe they've done all the schooling they're going to do or what have you. You could move $35,000 to a Roth IRA for them. Uh, so a few things. That $35,000 threshold is lifetime. It doesn't have to be a lump sum uh, movement. It can happen um, over time, but there are some restrictions, as I said. First of all, that 529 account has to have been in place for at least 15 years, and the funds have to move directly into the IRA. There's no uh, uh, there's no uh, place where you can kind of put it temporarily. It's got to go right into uh, the Roth IRA for the same individual who was the beneficiary of the 529 plan. Also, any 529 contributions that have been made within the prior five years and any earnings attributed to those contributions aren't eligible to be rolled into the Roth IRA. You'd have to wait a while uh, and then move that money, provided you stay within, again, that $35,000 lifetime amount. So the amount that's moved into the Roth IRA um, in any given year also has to be within the IRA contribution limits. In other words, you can't totally fund your uh, your Roth IRA and then swing the 529 money in on top of that. It's got to stay within those IRA contribution limits, which is, I think everybody knows, isn't $35,000. So uh, so you can't do it all in one year. But that's a really, that's a, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, Dom. Uh, so the beauty of, of the planning, again, starting next year, is that if you have some old accounts laying around that you, you've been blessed that you don't need that money to pay for education, you can take a bucket that theoretically is growing tax deferred and convert some of it to a bucket for the child's future that can grow tax free. I eat mm -hmm. a Yeah. That's a terrific planning. Uh, I think so, too, personally. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a yeah. I would, that's exactly what I was going to chime in with. That's a pretty powerful tool that you could presumably set a young person up with a Roth IRA with a chunk of money like that and give them effectively what could be tax free growth for decades. Yes, um, and and I guess my question would be, how do you define young? Because remember that 529 money might still be something that they would be interested in tapping into to pay for college, you know, college and higher education and so forth. But if it were me and it were my kids, I'd set up the 529 sooner rather than later. So at least it's got that 15 year growth period. You know, so, Robert, it's not unusual for me and Mike to have clients that have been with us for 15, 20 years that we set up uh, 529 plans back then. And so it's not, I'll say common, but not terribly unusual that that these things are laying around and you're wondering after college, after graduation, what do we do with these things going forward? So again, not everyday occurrence, but they're out there for sure. Oh, yes. Very true. Very true. So, so you have two kind of education-oriented elements there of Secure 2.0. One is that the employer uh, can make contributions on someone's behalf if they are paying down student debt, uh, you know, again, to give them a little bit of a jump start um, on, on saving for retirement. And the other education-oriented component of SECURE Act 2.0 is uh, taking that thirty up to $35,000 lifetime, swing it from the 529 
uh, into the Roth. And again, there are those restrictions as well. Roberta, one question. We know Dominic and I get a lot of a lot of calls. Uh, sometimes parents are desperate. They want to tap into their IRA to pay for their student, you know, their student loans. They want to take a loan against their 401k. So just that provision you just mentioned, a parent cannot set that up to pay for their child's student loans. It has to be the actual person, the student who has that student loans, correct? Um, can you repeat the question? I, I so, want to make so, sure I understand it carefully. So if my children graduated with, with student loans and I want to yes. help them pay pay them, I cannot take tap into my 401k to help pay their student loans. They have to tap into their own 401k to pay their student loans. Yes, that's true. Yep. Okay. Roberta, an add-on to that, if there are uh, 529 dollars left over in that bucket some of that money can be used for student loans oh yes sure and i think that amount is ten thousand dollars in total yeah so I, i'm yes. not sure if that was part of this secure act or the prior one but it's another resource that look the government's trying to figure out a way to help these kids pay for student debt uh, education expenses and student debt so this idea that you could take $10,000 out for loans, I think is a ter another terrific add-on. I agree. Yep. So Susan, I'm sorry, Susan. So uh, Roberta, the government gave us all these goodies and, and really tried to make things a little bit more user-friendly when it comes to retirement and savings and student loans. Someone's got to pay for it. And the way the government decided to pay for some of these things is they changed the way distributions are made when someone inherits a retirement account who's not a, a direct spouse, correct? That's correct. Can we go into some of those details? Yeah. Under SECURE Act 1.0, um, if you are a non-spouse and you're going to inherit an IRA, and I... Uh, in, uh, in I referred to this a little while ago, so I apologize if I wasn't clear enough or just assumed uh, something. But if I'm going to inherit an IRA that is not my spouse's, then I am a non-spousal beneficiary. That part's hopefully pretty clear. That also means that I must take all the money, all the I must take the money out within a 10-year time frame. So when I was referring to my two kids, the uh, uh, high tax bracket uh, surgeon and the starving artist, if I leave my IRA to the uh, high tax bracket surgeon, now I have, um, I have, I don't want to say set them up because that sounds like a good thing. I have left them with what could be a pretty serious tax burden because they in turn must take that money out within a 10 year time frame. Um, if I, so anyway, so what I might think about doing is looking at my various accounts and figuring out um, instead of just um, naming beneficiaries, you know, without giving it some, some consideration, uh, I might want to also consider the potential tax bracket of that beneficiary, particularly if they stand to inherit IRAs. Now, another way in which I might, um, avoid or at least start to avoid some of that is again, maybe um, maybe start drawing down my IRA earlier, uh, potentially exhaust that and leave the um, high tax bracket surgeon another equal asset 
where the tax burden would not be so egregious. So uh, to Dom's point a little earlier, uh, you know, possibly, and again, I don't know everybody's situations, so I, I'm not giving this as advice, but possibly taking money out of the RMD, maybe I'm in a, uh, well, I don't know, a 12% marginal tax bracket, uh, buying some life insurance, and then that would endow to the beneficiary tax-free. Uh, so it all depends, like who's paying the taxes? If I'm in the 12% tax bracket, marginal tax bracket, and my child's in the 24% marginal tax bracket, maybe the taxes are better paid on that IRA distribution by me uh, as opposed to dumping it on them. Well, what I just want to be clear about, and those are all great points, is prior to Secure Act 1.0, one of the options a non-spouse survivor had was to do a lifetime stretch. The stretch IRA, absolutely. Right, which was a great tool. Dominic and I use that every day, every day. And And so now what the government's doing is rather than waiting another lifetime to collect those taxes. And the lifetime of their beneficiary and the lifetime of their beneficiary. Right. Exactly. They've condensed it over 10 years as a way, in my belief, to help pay for these other goodies that they've doled out. Very true. Clearly, if they're forcing these non-spouse beneficiaries to take the money out, and basically, not all at once, but clearly over that 10-year window, the amount of total taxes they collect is going to be substantially higher than if they waited over a 30, 40, 50-year period to collect the taxes. Oh, no question. Very true. And so many people have so much of their wealth in their retirement plans. You know, so I, I think that's something that I think is something that possibly is not lost. No. the government. No. So let's let's switch gears a little bit, Roberta. Something you brought up, I don't want to get lost in all these numbers and dates, but clients have not reached their required minimum distribution age to mm-hmm. so read these, these numbers, which will be 73 going forward. Right. But myself and Mike are having conversations every day. Hey, you haven't gotten to that date yet, but maybe part of the money you're requesting should come from the IRA anyway, Right? Maybe we do a balance between non-IRA and IRA money. I know it creates a taxable event, but maybe it helps us down the road. So can we spend a few minutes on that subject? Yeah, sure. So um, depending upon uh, where you are income-wise, tax-wise, and all that sort of thing, a few other thoughts. Remember, 15% of your Social Security payment uh, is tax-free. Um, and, and one thing that um, we've been doing some work around is tax diversification. So if you could set up three different buckets um, that is allocated by its tax taxation, you know, we're all familiar with asset allocation. Now we're talking about uh, allocation from a tax standpoint. So a taxable account, uh, maybe that might be where you hold some assets where you might not hold it very long, but at least one year so that you could take advantage of long-term capital gains, uh, favorable rates should you sell that asset. Uh, a tax-deferred account, and I, again, would suggest that most people have most of their wealth in those buckets, and then a tax-free account. And then, you know, you can take taxable money, possibly up to your 12% marginal bracket, and then move over and start taking money out of a Roth um, or a VUL, you know, insurance policy or uh, loan from a life insurance policy. So tax diversification, you know, is is something I know you guys work with frequently. So, uh, but it's certainly a, a consideration as well. Um, also, taking money out of the IRA 
versus claiming Social Security early uh, could potentially result in you getting a Social Security check that's bigger because the longer you wait to claim your Social Security benefit, the bigger that benefit is likely to be. So, you know, that might make some sense there as well. Roberta, you did a great you did a great um, update tonight on Secure Act 2.0. Um, if any clients have any, any need for any other information, they can reach out to, as Dom said, me or Dom or their tax advisor. But Roberta, unfortunately, we're out of time tonight. Um, but we appreciate all the information and, and the insight that we got from you in Nationwide. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to work with you guys. So uh, invite me back soon, I hope. Uh, we will. And again, thanks for the uh, the update. And I know this was really complicated. I want to emphasize that, uh, a couple of issues that talk to your financial advisor, talk to your tax planning CPA firm, talk to us, talk to Roberta. We're all here to help you. This is kind of complicated stuff and it's evolving. So we're here as a resource. We will be right back right after this break. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network small businesses are in trouble and it didn't just start with covid19 from the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Labenthal Report. If you're listening to the show live, join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at Labenthal.com. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartsman, back with Dominic Tavella. So, Dom, that was a great conversation with Roberta. But we got to one point, and, it, and Roberta was just giving us the information, but there was one part of this rule that my head wanted to explode. I mean, so a bunch of congressmen got into a room and said, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to... Take a group of people between 60 and 63, and for only yeah. those three years. Mike, I got to interrupt. You want to take a guess of the age of the people in the room? I'm just saying. I don't know. Maybe it's a coincidence, but. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly, because we are not going to qualify, but that's not why my head wants to explode, right? What is the logic behind, I mean, is this, there must be some either randomness to that 
or some actual actuarial study. But who comes up with this stuff? Look, uh, I, I don't know the answer to that, so I don't even want to <laughs> pretend. I don't want to have an opinion. But this is what we're dealing with, right? Uh, and we alluded to it a little bit with Roberta that, okay, Congress passes the law, but now it's up to the IRS to actually write the language. And uh, I, I'll spend a second on this 529 plan conversion to Roth, I reached out to one of our providers to kind of get a feel for, we can do some planning this year for clients and go, how's this going to work? And they said, we, we don't know. Don't we know. literally don't have a clue. I know that's what the law is going to be, but how it's going to work, we don't have a clue. And I don't want to throw the, the company under the bus, but they're a very large financial institution, very bright people, the, the, the smartest in the world, I want to say, they don't know yet how it's going to work. Right. Uh, and and, and look, this is also rhetorical. So you have a, a 529 that's 15 years old, but can you put, I don't know, $34,000 in it on la a year ago and then say, it's a 15-year-old plan. I mean, does the money have to be there all that time? I mean, there's so many, so many loose ends with all of this. And that's just one aspect of this, right? And then we're talking about beneficial uh, IRAs, non-spouse, and how they take the withdrawals. Is it, we understood the law to be they could wait till year 10 to take those dollars out or maybe year five because they've stopped working and they're in a lower tax. Now that it might be that you got to take it out every year. So here we are trying to do wealth planning, tax planning for retirement planning for our clients. And we're going, what are the rules? What are the rules we have to abide by? Not right. Not easy. Right. And look, and, the other, and look, and it, we're just venting now at this point, but, you know, it goes from 73 to 75, you got to wait 10 years. So I, I, I'm going to give whoever, whatever part of government puts these plans together, the benefit of the doubt. And it's just, just some randomness and, you know, and, and some ridiculousness that they come up with these with these bands and these and these age brackets. Yeah, uh, and Mike, uh, again, uh, we'll stop the venting in one more second, at least on my part. But these are the rules they passed today. But three years ago, it was 70 and a half. And two years ago, it was 72. And now it's going to be 73. But only if you didn't turn 72 this year. So we don't know what the rules are going to be next year or five years from there. Right. So we will make the best decisions we possibly can, given the rules that we have today. But I surely expect those rules are going to change. And look, I will I will say this, lend on a high note, at least the government's trying to, to, to benefit savers and retirees. And look, they actually passed a bipartisan bill that actually, you know, both Republicans and Democrats actually had a vote for it or never would have passed. So it's obviously important to people in government and they're 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 trying to help retirees. It's just, there's got to be a way to make it simpler. That's all. Uh, look, they keep talking about simplification, simplification of these rules, right? <laughs> uh, but let's not lose an important point that Roberta made. We know we are going to have this just ginormous wealth uh, shortfall in retirement assets not too far down the road. So anything that they can do to help people accumulate more dollars in the end benefits all of us, including budget deficits in, in the government systems for Social Security, Medicare, or Medicaid.
Yeah. And look, you and I spent many, many hours going to meetings 10, 15 years ago, hearing about this enormous, enormous, enormous transfer of wealth that's supposed to be happening now. That's another that's a time for another show. But there's there's also this enormous gap down between people who actually are saving for retirement and people who are just woefully ill prepared, no matter what the government does. And, and truthfully, it's wonderful that you can put these dollars away. It's wonderful that you can do it all pre-tax, but you have to have the dollars to be able to do that. And as a large percentage of our population simply doesn't have those resources. Exactly. So listen, my friend, we are, we are out of time. I think it was a lively show, um, but I'll see you down the road. I'll see you next week. We'll be uh, here next week, but maybe not here in New York. So looking forward to the show next week, Mike. I'll be in New York. Have a good night, everybody. Good night, all. Thanks for tuning in to the Labenthal Report. Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman will be back for our next program, airing next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, have a great week.